And you can hold your Bibles there to 1 John chapter 3. You could hold it right there. Because that's what we're going to be looking at today. As a matter of fact, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 10. 4 through 10. <clears throat> and today we're going to be touching upon a subject that is not spoken too often about in churches these days. That is the whole issue of sin. We're going to define sin. We're going to take a look at sin. And to understand our text, I thought in order to understand our text, I thought we will start by defining some terms, right? We're going to define sin. What do we talk about when we talk about sin? I know a lot of people say, that's a sin, that's not a sin. We're going to take a quick look at that. Consequently, if we're going to look at sin, we have to look at salvation, the antidote to sin. So we're going to look at what is meant by biblical salvation. And then John uses a term throughout his epistle. He talks about practicing or committing. I'm going to take a look at that. What does it mean? So we're going to define them up front, and then we're going to go through the text. And what we're going to see is, is there are going to be really four principles that John is going to pull out in verses 4 through 10. And they are sin has been conquered, which is a great thing. Sin has no place in righteousness. Sin is of Satan. And that's going to yield another conclusion. And that conclusion is this. By this we will know the children of God and the children of the devil. As a matter of fact, John is going to talk about that it's obvious and we're going to deep dive that. So let's take a look. Let's, let's take a look at the first thing. What is sin? You know, the, the Greek word there for sin is harmatia. That's the Greek word for the word sin. And what it really means is, you know, you've heard the expression, it means missing the mark, right? But it goes beyond missing the mark. What sin actually is, is it's failure in an ethical or in a moral sense against God. That's what, what sin is. It's failure in an ethical sense. It's failure in a moral sense against God and specifically the law of God, right? So sin, put simply, is transgressing the law of God. What's a criminal? A criminal is somebody who transgresses society's law, right? And when you transgress that law and you're convicted of that law, you're known as a criminal. Well, sin is exactly the same thing except sin is moral failure against the moral law of God. Now, the Scripture defines many facets of sin, right? There is a state of sin, a state of sin, right? Prior to being a believer, you lived in a state of sin. And when you're in a state of sin, you sit under the judgment and the condemnation of God, right? Very simple. If you are not saved, you sit under the judgment and condemnation of God. You are in a state of sin, which is the primary reason why Christ came. Christ came for that very reason, to break the bondage, the yoke, and the tyranny of sin, right? There's the act of committing sins. The act of committing sins are individual violations of the law of God. Right? We know the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. 
Well, the moral law of God says, thou shalt not steal. So when people steal, what are they doing? They're committing a transgression against the moral law of God. They're practicing, if you would, sin. They're continuing to do that. They're actively doing this, actively defying the moral law of God. There's one of my favorite things, repentance from sin. Right? Repentance is when a person turns completely. So they were heading south, and they do a 180, and they're heading north. Now, repentance is not a human work. I want to make this clear. There are people who say, oh, you talk about repenting. Salvation is by grace and grace alone through faith. If you repent, that's a human work. No. Repentance is an outward manifestation of an inward work of God. God goes about by doing the inward work. He calls the unbeliever to himself through the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. That person repents, and when they repent, an outward manifestation of that repentance becomes evident. I don't know what your experiences are like, but, you know, I've known in my lifetime many people who were heroin addicts that came to Christ, right? And they were always hustling for their drugs. Or maybe an alcoholic. Or maybe you were bound, excuse me, maybe you were bound to pornography. Whatever the sin, right? When a person comes to Christ, When they have been touched by the Holy Spirit, what happens? Boom! There's a change. All of a sudden, they don't desire alcohol. They don't desire drugs. A very good friend of mine, very good friend of mine, was a gang leader and a heroin addict for years. He walked in. He was invited by someone to my father's church. He walked into church on Sunday. My father was preaching. He surrendered his life to Christ. He tells me, I don't even know what he preached about. I was compelled to go up, right? Went up, went home, was still a heroin addict, right, at the time. Went to shoot up, couldn't shoot up. Told his wife, I'm going into the room for about three or four days. No matter what you hear, don't come in. Went in kicked heroin, cold turkey, never took drugs again. After he came out, he used to take his Bible after church, and he used to go preach to the gangs. In Brooklyn, the gangs lived in tenement buildings, abandoned tenement buildings. And he used to stand on the outside. Hey, I'm coming in. I'm just going to let you know I'm coming in, and I'm going to preach to you the gospel and he would go in places cops wouldn't go into and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was delivered from the yoke. He had repented. That change was reflected, but that change wasn't brought about by himself. It was brought about by the power of God. You know, the most beautiful thing is that Christ came I want everybody to get this because this is really important. Christ came 
to overcome the power of sin. That's why Christ came, to, to overcome the dominion of sin, the bondage of sin, the slavery of sin. That was the reason Christ came. Romans 3.21 through 22. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, but now apart from the law of righteousness, God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Look what verse 25 says. Speaking of Christ, he says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. And we've talked about that term, but that term propitiation means either to appease or to satisfy. When we use the term that Christ was a, a propitiation, what that means is that Christ appeared, his sacrifice appeased the wrath of God on the cross. It satisfied God's need for justice upon those who believe. So he says, whom God displayed, he displayed him publicly on the cross. He displayed him as a propitiation, as one who satisfies his wrath in his blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness, God's righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed. Now, if you're in Christ, your sins have been dealt with. They were dealt with on the cross. And God took Christ's sacrifice on the cross and he said, that satisfies my justice for Jason and for Lewis and for Mike and for Jennifer. It satisfies my justice. My wrath was poured out. Your sin was placed upon him, but my wrath was poured out upon my son. Therefore, my wrath is satisfied, therefore I can justify Mike, Jennifer, Jason, Lewis. It's an amazing, amazing doctrine, right? Christ came to restore righteousness, particularly God's righteousness. And not merely on earth, but in the hearts and lives of believers. Again, one of my favorite chapters in the entire book of Romans is Romans chapter 6. But look what it says in Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, notice he uses a past tense, you were slaves of sin. You're not actively slaves of sin. There's a lot of Latin language going about in the church that so-and-so has a problem with this and so-and-so has a problem with that. No, that's sin. And you were slaves. Slaves have no rights at all. They can only do the will of their master. Right? Paul says you were slaves of sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been what? Freed. Past tense. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I go back to my friend Robert in Brooklyn. He was a slave of sin. He was a heroin addict. He was a thief. He was a gangbanger. He used to be a slave of sin. But when he came to Christ, right, he was set free. He was free from sin. And what happened? 
he subsequently became a slave, not of sin, but of God's righteousness. Praise God. So believers have been set free from sin and now become slaves of righteousness to God. Do you think of yourself as a slave of righteousness to God? So that's sin. What's the antidote to sin? Salvation. What is salvation? Why do we talk about salvation in Jesus Christ? The primary purpose of Jesus Christ coming to earth was in order to take sin away, right? So he was going to take sin away. Christ's mission was to deliver the believer from sin, as we just showed. But that salvation goes well beyond that. And salvation is accomplished in three ways. I want you to know this. Number one, salvation in Christ delivers us from the penalty of sin. What was the penalty? God's wrath. All have fallen short of the glory of God and subsequently were subject to the justice of God. Everybody knows John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But they often do not know 17 and 18. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And verse 18, for he who believes is not condemned. You hear that? Those who believe in Christ are not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. There it is. There's that natural depravity, that state of sin. He's condemned already. He's sitting under the judgment. They're sitting under the judgment of God. Christ came... And he offers salvation so that all who put their faith and trust in Christ are freed from the penalty of sin. They're freed from that condemnation. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, as the King James says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So number one, salvation in Christ delivers believers from the penalty of sin. We call this justification. That's what justification is. We've been justified by God. We've been justified by Christ. But it doesn't end there. Salvation in Christ delivers believers from the power of sin. We call this sanctification, right? That if you're in Christ, you're delivered from the power of sin. You're no longer a slave of sin. You've been freed from the dominion of sin. You've been freed from the bondage of sin. You do not have to go on presenting your bodies as instruments of sin. You have been delivered from that. And there's a third glorious element to this this as well. Salvation in Christ will ultimately deliver, get this, will ultimately deliver believers from the presence of sin. And this we call glorification. And this begins in our life on earth. We have a term we use when we, people say, well, how do you know if I'm in Christ? Well, we look at progressive sanctification. How is the person being conformed more and more into the image of Christ? Are you the same person that you were when you made your profession? Or are you a new creation in Christ, right? That is sanctification, but sanctification 
ultimately leads to glorification, which is ultimately fulfilled when Christ comes back or we go to be with him. We will forever, believers, 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 we will forever be delivered from the presence of sin. And that should be result in a major league hallelujah. I don't know about you, man, but I am waiting for the day that this warring inside of me ends. This struggle against sin ends. The temptation and the vileness and the righteous indignation that we derive when we not only see sin around us. And let me tell you something, church. We're living in a day we don't have to go looking for sin. It is right in our face. Just go to the beach. Just go to the beach. You go to the beach, man, it's plastered. I go to the beach, I have to keep my head down all the time. I'm not looking for it. It's there. Put on the TV. It's there. Listen to music. It's there. It's all around us. When we tell people that they must come to Christ, that they must get saved, we're calling them to be delivered from sin. There's nothing evil about that. I hope you know that. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. I hope you know that. When we're telling men and women, come and be saved, be saved, be saved, well, they may get angry or they may revolt at the thought. What are we telling them? Come to Christ, be saved, and be delivered from the bondage of sin. Be delivered from the penalty of sin. Be delivered from the power of sin. That's ultimately what we're telling them. And true biblical salvation results in deliverance from imminent danger. That's what salvation means. It means to be delivered from imminent danger. What is the imminent danger? It is sin and the judgment of God against sin. Let me make a statement here. Therefore, it is totally inconsistent with Scripture. Totally inconsistent with Scripture. That so-called believers in Christ can remain perpetually in sin, remain perpetually in sin, and not desire God, not desire holiness, not desire God's righteousness, Listen, those are the primary marks of a believer, and we're going to see that in the text today. John is going to make a statement. Listen, I'm going to tell you something that's pretty obvious. We can know who are believers, and we can know who are unbelievers. He said it's manifest. It's visible. Lastly, the term that John uses, what does it mean to practice, or as the King James says, to commit? What is he talking about when we, when we see that? Well, that means basically to manufacture, to make, or to construct. So when you talk about it in a sense, in a spiritual sense, he's talking about you're manufacturing sin. You're making sin, or you're making righteousness. As I mentioned before, just to summarize on these three points, that basically sin is transgression against the moral and ethical law of God, Christ came to deliver uh, believers from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. That's what we have in salvation. And believers are no longer bound to sin and do not 
consistently practice sin. Now, John gives us four principles in our text that we're going to take a look at. And let's take a look at the very first one found in verses 4 and 5. And that is this. Sin has been conquered. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. I love, I was telling uh, my sister before church today, I have fallen in love with John. John the Apostle. Man, this guy does not mix words. He is ever so direct. I love this epistle because there's no confusion. There's no ambivalence in what he says. In John's ever-direct style, John links the ongoing committing of sin, practices, there's that word, with the very lawlessness that it demonstrates. Matter of fact, he says, sin is lawlessness. And it is lawlessness against the very law of God. That's what he's talking about. Look at verse 5. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Great news. Sin has been conquered. And it has been conquered not in the 12-step program. It has been conquered in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. Look at Matthew 7. 23, the Lord Jesus says this, and then I will declare to them, this is when everybody says, you know, hey, Lord, you know, didn't we do this in your name, that in your name? He says, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, violators of the transgressions of God. And the praise to God is that this lawlessness has been conquered by Jesus Christ, I mentioned to you before Romans 3.25 that says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, and this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed. Praise God, sin has been conquered. Turn in your Bibles real quick. This is one of my favorite verses. Turn in your Bibles real quick to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Just real quick, we're just going to... 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm sorry, not 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm sorry for that. Look with me at verse 15. Listen to this statement from the Apostle Paul. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sin has been conquered. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. And yet for this reason, I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Oh, man. I'll tell you, I might have an argument to pick with the Apostle Paul in this verse. He calls himself the chief of sinners. I think I would do a good job contending for that position. But regardless of the fact, 
We do know, as Paul said, he came into the world to save sinners. Therefore, sin has been conquered. Principle number one, which leads us to the next principle found in verses six and seven. And that is sin has no place. It has no place with the righteousness of God. Look at verses 6 and 7. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And from our previous study, we already know what that word to abide means, don't we? It means to consistently, perpetually remain within. That's what that term means. And notice what he says. He says, believers remain in the presence and in the spiritual lifeline of Christ. Now, I want you to know something. The reason why believers remain in the presence and in the spiritual lifeline of Christ, because it is Christ who saved them, it is Christ who justifies them, it is Christ who sanctifies them, and it's Christ who holds them. So believers are held by Christ. Believers are held. Now, not when I say believers, I want to be crystal clear with this. It doesn't mean everyone who professes the name of Jesus Christ. That's evident in Matthew chapter 7. But are those who remain, who abide in Him, who are remaining consistently within Him. John's message to the church is that those who abide in Christ What don't they do? They do not practice sin. They do not make, manufacture sin. And what are you talking about with practice? It involves consistently. Let me put it to you this way. There are many people who profess the name of Jesus, but their lives are no different from the moment they make that profession for the rest of their life, but they profess Jesus. And if you ask them, are you a Christian? They're going to say, yes, I am a Christian. And then when you ask them, how do you know if you're a Christian? It usually comes back to, I accepted Jesus Christ on such and such a day. And when you say to them, and what do you do for the Lord today? Usually there's a pause. Well, I don't go to church anymore. Church is full of hypocrites. I don't do this anymore. I don't do that anymore. And then when you measure their life, when we as ordinary human beings measure their life, does their life reflect the fact that they have been delivered from sin? And many times, look, I'm not the definitive authority. I am not God. But many times, the life is not evident of having been delivered from the bondage and freed from sin. And what has consequently happened in the church over the years is it's become very much stylish to make the statement, I'm sure you've heard this, well, God knows I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner too. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. That's not a true statement. I was a sinner. 
You were a sinner if you were in Christ. In the eyes of God, you know what you are? You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Are we perfect? No. Do believers fall and stumble? Yes. There's a difference between falling and stumbling and remaining perpetually in a life of sin. The other thing that's evident in the heart of the believer is that when we do sin, I know everybody could relate to this sin. That sin of pride wells up in us. When we do sin, when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit of that sin, what do we do? We bring that sin to the feet of Jesus. And then we confess that sin. Is that not what we saw in 1 John 1, 7? If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. He goes on in verse 9 to say, if we confess our sin, who's the we? It's the church. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And do what with the sins? Keep a record? Beat us to death over them? No. What does he do? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, sin has no place with the righteousness of God. In verse 7, John adds the necessary clarity to the statement in verse 6 by adding his perspective. Purpose. His purpose for declaring this is very simple. It is this. He does not want you to be deceived. Don't be deceived by those that are telling you it's okay to remain in sin. It's okay. You can remain in sin and be a Christian too. His purpose is very clear. Don't be deceived. And he adds to it. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he. Notice that capital H. He is righteous. Don't be deceived. Why was he saying that? What is the epistle to? We talked about this in the early days as we embarked on this study. It is a refutation. It is a defense of the gospel against the emergence of several false doctrines, primarily which was Gnosticism. And the Gnostics believe that all matter was inherently evil. Therefore, if I am trapped in a body which is physical matter, therefore I am inherently evil. If I am evil, then I'm going to do evil things. And if I do evil things, it's just me acting out my normal nature. But don't worry about that. As long as you have this secret, ascendant, spiritual, mystical experience, you're okay. God doesn't look at you as a sinner because God says, poor guy, is all consisting of matter. He will only be set free when he becomes spirit. And by the way, what made that such a lethal doctrine is because all matter is evil, Jesus could have never have become a human being. 
And if Jesus couldn't have become a human being, Jesus never physically died on the cross. If Jesus didn't physically die on the cross, Paul tells us that we are still in our sins. If Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, there is no hope. Sin has won. And we know that is not the truth. And notice, it's masqueraded. It's masqueraded as a really good doctrine. And so Gnostics were known to frequent the temple prostitutes. Gnostics were known to be drunkards. Gnostics were known to be able to indulge in licentiousness and the sins of the flesh, but yet they felt they were right with God. And John writes, don't be deceived. Let me add a footnote to this. There are many in the church of Jesus Christ today that could tell you you could, be, you could be saved, you could walk right with God. It does not even matter your own holiness, your own sanctification. Don't worry about it. Just focus on your justification. Just focus on the fact that Christ paid the penalty for your sins. The early church dealt with that. It was a doctrine called antinomianism. Basically said it doesn't matter how you live. All that matters is, quote, you accepted Jesus. And that has given rise to different kinds of theology, like the carnal Christian, which you won't find in Scripture. And it has given rise to to people that say, well, you know, you're once saved, always saved. Now let me be crystal clear with this. I want to be crystal clear with this. I do indeed believe that you were once saved, you were always saved. The believer in Jesus Christ. But that comes down to faith. The ones who apprehend the gospel by faith, not the ones who profess it. If your profession doesn't demonstrate that you have possessed Christ, something is inherently wrong. So that very same theology, that, matter of fact, let me take it a step further, that very same heresy is being preached in churches all across this land and across the world today. And I want to be crystal clear. If that were the case, then what John is writing here would be a lie. Look again in verse 6 and 7. No one abides in him sins. And no one who sins has ever seen him or knows him. Little children... Let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. I mean, does that really need any more elaboration? I think that's pretty straightforward. Let's look at the third principle. John takes it a step further. He tells us sin is of Satan. Look at verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Stop right there. I mean, if John was in the room, how many would raise their hand and say, what do you mean the one who sin is of the devil? I, 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 pretty clear, right? It's talking about those who abide in sin, those that are remaining in sin, those that are perpetually in sin. Not the single transaction, the state of sin that I talked about. When you're consistently violating the law of God. He says, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, 
What did he appear for? That he might reform the works of the devil? What does it say there? That he might destroy the works of the devil. You know, if we were going to look at this epistle from, from, from day one, and somebody asked me, write one summary sentence of what the epistle of 1 John is, my sentence would be this. Righteousness begets righteousness. Unrighteousness begets unrighteousness. That's it. Righteousness begets righteousness. If you're righteous, you're born of God, guess what? You're going to be righteous. You're going to do righteous deeds. If you're unrighteous, you're not born again, well, then there's going to be unrighteous deeds that are going to follow. And just as in verse 6 and 7, John states that consistency in righteousness reveals righteousness. Here he states something similar, but the opposite, and that is the consistency in unrighteousness, what we call sin, reveals unrighteousness or sin of the heart. So what's the, everybody always asks this, what's the difference between the believer in Jesus Christ, the one who has been born again, and the unbeliever, the doubter, the one who practices unrighteousness and rebellion against God's law? It's simple. It's simple. The one who practices sin. Remember that, circle that word practices in your Bible or committing in your Bible. The one who commits sin, the one who's habitually in sin, the one that's perpetually in sin, the one whose life is marked by sin is of the devil. Interesting word, that word devil there in the Greek is diabolos. And diabolos in the Greek means a slanderer. A false accuser. In Revelation, it talks about when Jesus, when, when, when Satan is finally judged. It says that the saints in heaven rejoice and they go, the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. That's what he does. He accuses us before the Father. He accuses us constantly. Right? He falsely accuses us. We saw that in Job, right? Satan was in the court of heaven going back and forth, and Job, God said to Job, hey, have you seen my servant Job? There's nobody like him on the earth. What did Satan say? Well, that's because you bless him perpetually, but I'll tell you what, if you let me at him, he'll curse you to your face. You know the rest of the story. His wife may have wanted him to curse him, but he never cursed God. Sin is of Satan. Listen, the accuser, he keeps his children bound. He keeps them in bondage. Tells them false things to believe. Keeps them captive. Unbelievers will always manifest that unrighteousness toward God. And they do that because they are unrighteous and unwilling to submit to the Lord. Listen, I said this before, I say it again. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to see this. Paul makes this really clear. Ephesians 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. He says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air 
of the spirit that was now working in the sons of disobedience. Who's the prince of the power of the air? It's the devil himself. It's Satan. Among them we too all, notice what he says, among them we too all formally lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, listen to verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, what a glorious truth. Christ came and destroyed the works of the devil. Paul tells the church at Corinth, we'd had many problems. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says, such were some of you, but, praise God for all the B-U-T's you see in Scripture, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Don't ever think what we espouse and teach here is sinless perfection because it is not. We talk about ever-present, everlasting grace that could take a wretch like me and make him the image of Christ. As I mentioned before, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. One is either of God, and if so, you will be practicing the righteousness of God, or one is of the devil, practicing unrighteousness in need of a Savior. And it all comes down to which one are we, which brings us to our fourth and final point here. Verses 9 and 10, by this we know the children of God. Look at verses 9 and 10. No one who is born of God practices sin because his, God's, seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this we know the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Here's the summation. This is the summation of his points right here in in chapter 3. It's all about how someone lives. Whether they live, as John says, in light or darkness, or practicing righteousness, or practicing unrighteousness, you will live who you are. The believer will live in righteousness. The unbeliever will live in unrighteousness. The righteous practice, they commit, they consistently live and demonstrate God's righteousness because they know Christ and they have been affected by the fact that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, you may say, well, I know this person who says they're a Christian and they don't do what that person who calls themselves a Christian is. Don't be deceived. There's different levels of maturity in the kingdom of God. There are people in the church of God that serve, and they serve anonymously, and they serve quietly, but they serve unto the Lord. 
There are people in the church of God with more visible gifts, whether it's singing, whether it's preaching, whether it's teaching Bible studies, whatever it is. One doesn't get exalted above the other. Whatever gift that God has given to you, the only transgression you commit is not to use that gift. Which is why God has placed the church as the vehicle to serve within. We must become men and women that we serve. We cannot be hearers of the word of God, but not doers. But if you're born again, you will demonstrate the righteousness of God. You will. Just as certain as those that are unsaved do not demonstrate the righteousness of God. Now, it doesn't mean that unsaved people are unethical. There are going to be a lot of people who miss heaven that paid their taxes on time, that were law-abiding citizens, that helped people across the street, that cooked meals for people. That's not what we're talking about. That's moralism. Unsaved people have good moral character. I have tons of friends that are unsaved. That I, I tell you what, if I was in trouble, they would be some of the first people I'd want near me because they're so good in the context of our world. But what we're talking about is spiritually right with God. Spiritually right with God. And this is urgent. This is critical. As believers in Christ, we have to know our position. It's not about manufacturing that. It's about yielding ourselves and surrendering surrendering ourselves to Christ and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us for the glory of God. Notice in verse 10, John makes this statement. He says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. And that word obvious there means that it is visible. It is manifest. And he goes on to say, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Let me share something with you. There are many people who defy God. They defy God's order they defy, they defy the creative order of God, but they present themselves as good, moral people. And they develop complex arguments to demonstrate why they're good, moral people or why they are the way they are, etc., etc. But you will always notice in the argument they could never support it by the holy word of God, by the scriptures. It'll always be this doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean this, flip this over here, turn that. If you take that out and you do this, the other thing, that's how their arguments stand. Do not be deceived. That's what John is talking about here. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived by complex arguments. Let the word of God speak with its full authority. And here the word of God speaks. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. And the one who practices unrighteousness is unrighteous. So what does this mean to us? This is the key point. John's admonition in the text is a warning to the churches in Asia. And it's a warning to us 
Matter of fact, he uses the term in verse 7, little children, do not be deceived. What's the admonition to the church today? Children, do not be deceived. That was in his heart. Listen, that's in my heart. I have a similar sentiment. Do not be deceived by those who will tell you that as a believer you can live in consistent sin. Don't be deceived by that. Remember the principles that we learned here today. Sin has been conquered, praise God. Sin has no place with righteousness. Sin is of Satan. And remember John's statement in verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. So what does our lives reveal about us? Are we abiding in Christ? Do we love Christ? Listen, do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? I use this all the time, but I just want to make one point with that. If you are hungering, if you are starving to death, the number one preoccupation in your mind is this, i got to find something to eat. If you are dying of thirst, the preoccupation of your heart would be, where do I find something to drink? I'm parched. I need to survive. When Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. He is using two of the most physiological responses to illustrate what it means to follow God. So I ask you, do you hunger for him? Do you wake up every morning and say, I have to have my fill of God to to survive? Do you thirst after him? They say, Lord, come and quench this burning deep, deep, deep in my soul. Lord, send that living water so that, Lord God, I would be refreshed by your presence. You know what both have in common? Hunger and thirst. The physiological response that both have in common is both are looking for that. Whether it's water or food. Are you searching for Christ? And if you have found him, is he your satisfaction? Are you satisfied in Christ? Listen, the world would have us, man, I got to tell you, the world will distract us every way possible. Just like when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Remember when Satan took him up to the pinnacle in the temple and it says that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I'll give you all of this if you worship me. You know what Satan does to us today? He takes us up to the pinnacle in the temple. I'll give you all of this. I'll give you cars. I'll give you beautiful homes. I'll let you travel the world, see everything. I'll give you money in your bank account. I'll give you everything. I'll give it all to you if you come and worship me. You know what God's doing in these days? He's calling a pure people to himself. So take Take all the nonsense, all the other nonsense that's out in all the other churches, all the other hoopla, all the... Listen, in the end, 
We are going to be judged on faithfulness. And that faithfulness is to one. Were we faithful to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son? That's the only thing that's going to matter. Were we born again? Did we surrender ourselves to Christ? And all those things that the devil is showing us, all the things on the top of the temple, all the kingdoms of the world, all the riches of the world, all the things of the world, is not going to measure, it's not going to amount to anything other than are we faithful. Join with me in a word of prayer. Father John, I love his admonition in this. Be not deceived. Do not be deceived. Lord, we have been deceived more times than we like, more times than we care to admit. But right at this moment, Lord, turn our eyes from the things of the world. John already told us in chapter 2, do not love the world nor the things of the world, for if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And may this not be said about any one of us here. So, Father, I repent for those moments where I'm deceived. But I pray, Lord, that we as a church, that there would not be any here who would be deceived. And if there are, if anyone here says, Father, I have been deceived, I have practiced unrighteousness. The sum total of my life, Lord, is disobedience and transgression against the law of God. Father, I want to know that sin has been conquered. Father, may they open their eyes to the only one who can save them the Lord Jesus Christ. May they confess and repent of their sins and cry out, O oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I trust your perfect righteousness and your sacrifice on the cross. And may they, Lord God, come to faith in Christ and that they would know that Savior who delivers us from the bondage and frees us from the penalty of sin. Father, we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God.